This is Christy, and we have merchandise. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com and check out amazing t-shirts, mugs, stickers. If you love great quotes, we have some of our favorites. If you love silliness, check out our mascot, Brain Man. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com, clip on the shop button, and find something for that person who needs to be reminded that we are fashioned creatures but half made up. Mary Shelley said that. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. We proudly welcome artist Samantha Sherry as our sponsor on the How to Love Lit podcast, Sam is a world-class artist specializing in animal portraits. We invite you to check out her work at samanthasherry.com. Tell her Christian Gary sent you. Again, samanthasherry.com. And I'm Gary Shriver, and this is the How to Love Lit Podcast. Today, we're continuing with our second episode over the narrative of the life of Frederick Douglass, an American slave, written, of course, by Frederick Douglass himself. The remarkable piece of rhetoric where Douglass uses his life story from birth to his escape at age 20 to construct the powerful argument not only against slavery as a vile and grave injustice towards a slave, but also a consumingly evil and destructive force to the slave owner, humanity as a whole, and a violation against God himself. There has not been a slave narrative that has been so widely read and more influential as we discussed extensively last week. That's right. And today we want to discuss chapters 1 through 7 and really pick apart not only the most important elements of his argument, although that's the most important thing we're going to talk about, but we want to highlight the beauty of his choice of words and, of course, discuss the lasting implications of the eternal truth he's really teaching. And I want to emphasize the word teaching. Douglas did actually consider himself to be a teacher, even from his early days. And we'll notice in the book he talks about the Sabbath schools. We'll get into that next week. Uh, but maybe that's the reason why I love him so much. He has a true passion for teaching, and he sees it as the key for personal freedom. And as a teacher, I have to be a sucker for that. Yes. Well, we love the <laughs> idea of teachers really uh, opening the world up to people. Um, so Douglas, the, the teacher, he teaches and he inspires well beyond his generation and his discussion of the path of freedom is relevant physically as we see millions today that are still in human bondage uh the type of bondage may have changed but it's still a, a force around the world but emotionally and cognitively as well he really unlocks the key for himself as how to be free 
and he's going to explain exactly how that happened for him and express that freedom is more than just a physical experience. It must be obtained both intellectually and emotionally. And I think that's the most compelling part of anything he does. So with that being a sufficient introduction, let's get started with a short recap of where we left off last week and what we should be looking at this week from a rhetorical perspective. Well, last week we got into this idea of the Aristotelian uh, triangle and the idea, uh, Aristotle's old idea, that to be persuasive, you have to be able to do three things simultaneously. First of all, you have to establish your credibility. In other words, you have to make me trust you. I have to believe that what you're saying is something that I should believe. And then, of course, after that, you have to make sense. You have to build a logical case that I can remember well after I have left your presence. There are reasons and they're compelling reasons and they make sense in my mind. Or little ground can really be accessed over the long term. But thirdly, and this is perhaps the most important, you have to combine this with an emotional feel and an emotional appeal. I need to feel something in my heart. I have to be compelled or I'm really not going to change my behavior. And you really need to remember always that Douglas had in mind, he was really aware that he's writing to a white audience. He's not writing to slaves. They knew all this stuff. But he's probably thinking about uh, whites, mainly northern people, and he's ultimately trying to convince them what's ultimately going to be a significant price, maybe even the ultimate price of their lives for this cause that he's advocating. So the burden is great. Which to me is another sign of his genius how Frederick Douglass is able to study not only white culture, but study northern white culture. And he could see the divisions in the attitude of people who were abolitionists. The abolitionists, of course, were considered extremists during this time period. They wanted to advocate not only for freedom for slaves, but also citizenship. That was considered the radical part because there were a lot of anti-slavery people in the North, but they were not ready to commit to citizenship. And so the genius of Douglas is he's able to uh, look into the hearts and minds of this group that he's not even a native part of and discern how to appeal to them in the three ways with the uh, the ethos and the... Pathos and logos, as right. we like to say. Yeah, and the idea is you need to believe this. These are reasons that are going to sustain, but... So it's more than just feeling sorry for people. That only takes you so far. But if you're going to really put a gun to the thing and make them, you know, as you say, become citizens, I need to have a reason to believe this. And so we're going to see these carefully embedded uh, three-prong attack really in beginning in chapter one. And he's never going to let up the whole book. You're going to see these three things intertwining at every point. So and I would like to point out to the, to the listener listening, if you've read the book, you felt these things, even, yeah. if you, even if you didn't identify them while you were reading, they were happening to you. You felt them. And for some reason, maybe you were aware or didn't aware, but you believed him. And for some reason, whether you were aware or, dif- or you didn't realize it, he made sense to you. So those are the really the three things that I want you to compare or think about. And I want us to look at how did he, a- how is he able to do this? So in chapter one, we're going to see this. First of all, he makes it an eyewitness account. This is from the very beginning. He gives very specific details about the location 
the names of the people, exactly what they did and why they did it and who they were connected to. Now, you have to remember, this is risky for him. When he publishes this book, he's still a slave. These are people that are living. They're rich. And you're going to see how truly rich and powerful they really are. And it's not that difficult to conceive that they're going to come after him. They are calling, he is calling them out for adultery, for abuse, for murder. And this is, of course, uh, real things of real people that were being exposed in real time. And that's kind of part of what's compelling. He was brave enough to do that. And as we can guess, that never goes over well with the people being called out. I wouldn't appreciate it. <laughs> no. All right. And then he goes into these extremely graphic descriptions of what he's being forced to witness as a young age, a man beautifully, brutally abusing a woman for the crime of being with another man. And this brings us to one of the central basis of his entire argument that he's never going to stop making until the end of the narrative. He's going to say that slavery in its very essence is a dehumanizing process of everyone. It's the deliberate robbery of the God-given right to be a homo sapien, to be a person, to be an entity created in the image of God. And one person is going to take that from another. In the beginning, he's going to refer to slave babies as its. They're not children. They're things. And they're taken away from their mothers, just as he was. He's going to compare them to horses. They don't know anything about who they are. They're separated from each other, just as animals are. But by the end of this first chapter, he's going to take this argument one step further. Because look what happens. Hester is being beaten by supposedly a man who wants, we have to, he doesn't say this explicitly, but it's suggested that he wants her sexually and he's abusing her for that and so he's a man who's beating a woman not acknowledging that she's human but he wants to humanly abuse her sexually in some sense he's debasing himself perhaps even below humanity and he's not being debased he's debasing himself the treachery and the rage of these actions are not human. What we see out of the behavior of Mr. Plummer, and we're going to see this out of other slave owners, is that the total power over someone, when you take it, it paradoxically makes you worse than an animal. These are evil demons. His behavior is not human. It's not even animalistic. This behavior is demonic. Which is interesting because he's going to talk about that in a later chapter about a really sweet woman named Mrs. Ald. And he's going to account her transformation to this angelic soul, to this abusive, um, out-of-control woman. And I think that's brilliant because when he's speaking to his um, abolitionist audiences in Massachusetts and things of that nature, these people have never thought of something like that before. This is a whole new idea being opened up to that population. That's exactly right. And he's taking it from... This is not just you feeling sorry for people who are being mistreated. It's more than that. It's deeper than that. So argument number one, physical slavery dehumanizes the person who is the slave. And we're going to see this. Look what happens to these people when they are robbed of their humanity. They are going to see themselves as less than human. They're going to be running around naked. They're going to be animals and they're going to think of themselves as animals. 
but that's not the end of it. This is where one of my favorite all-time historical figures, Thomas Jefferson, comments to these kind of things. He had two famous quotes about slavery, even though he was a slave owner, which I think actually gives him credibility. His comment, number one, that I liked was he said, slavery is like holding a wolf by the ears. I mean, you can't let go and you can't hang on. It's not sustainable. It will destroy. He had a lot of comments about that. And perhaps he really felt in his heart. I think he was an observer of the whole thing really well. This tension, because what Thomas Jefferson would have seen from the outside, and of course, it would be so interesting to talk to him now, is that the slave is being transformed, but the slave owner is being transformed as well. And we see over the the life of Thomas Jefferson that he wasn't willing to really accept that, although you clearly see that he struggled with it. And fascinatingly enough about Jefferson, what made him different as a Southerner is that he was very well-traveled. He was, uh, you know, uh, our uh, ambassador to France for a long time. He'd spent a great deal of time in the North. So he had been away and out of that culture. And so to come uh, go to a non-slave culture and come back to it, I think probably gave him some really stark difficulties to think about. So let's go through the chapters two and three. And I'll, and as we go through them, we're obviously not going to read everything, but I do want to point out these things that we're wanting to particularly notice, the dehumanization element, yes. mm-hmm. and then um, some of the other things. The other third thing that I want to point out before we really jump into the chapter, because this is going to be Maybe what's different about this slave narrative than any other slave narrative, at least that I've ever read, is that he figures out the key to getting out of slavery. Yes, he does. And it has to do with the power of language. So we're going to see in chapters two and three, it's more subtle. And he's going to point out and he's going to illustrate for us that it's not just through the whip that the white man dominates the black man. It's through the words Whips alone are not enough. You have to have the element of the words or you cannot dominate another person. So if you can control the words, if you have the power of the mind, if you have the language, you reverse this trend. Well, one of the things we've discussed a a number of times in other podcasts is that words create reality. Right. And that makes it extremely powerful. So if you control the narrative and control the words, you create the reality. All right, so in chapter two, we're going to see the immense size. Of course, he's going to start out again, establishing ethos, distinguishing himself as a credible eyewitness, the immensity of this particular plantation. And of course, there are many, many, um, well, thousands of slaves, three or four hundred on just the home plantation, and there are neighboring farms, kind of like a conglomerate, or it's a business, uh, an agricultural business of multiple um, farms and industries feeding into this agro business. And to give you some idea of the size and scope of it, um, an, an average slave in this time period was $1,500 a piece. An enormous investment when you think about the 1840s and 1850s. And this plantation has a thousand or more. I mean, yeah. that's an enormous. Well, there are 20 capital. farms. It's an enormous capital investment. It's huge. And you, he also, he's going to juxtapose the size of the farm with how much, of course, they were feeding. And he's very specific about how, uh, how much of allotment each slave was allowed to have. So they were given eight pounds of pork or the equivalent of fish and one bushel of cornmeal per month. 
And of course, they were tasked with feeding themselves. And so if you ate it all, you're done. It's not like the ranch of mice and men where it's slop time and everybody gets fed. The slave worked all day, and then he had to cook at night. So then you have that going on. And of course, he says you get per year two coarse linen shirts, one pair of linen trousers, one pair of trousers for winter, one pair of stockings, and one pair of shoes. And the children unable to work in the field had neither shoes, stockings, jackets, nor trousers. They were given a shirt. And of course, children from 7 to 10 years old of both sexes were basically made to run around naked. And that, of course, is being treated like an animal. That is. And that is step one of the dehumanization right there. Controlling resources. Step two is they weren't allowed. They had one common bed, the cold, damp floor, each covering himself or herself with a miserable blanket. So the places that they were allowed to live, they weren't separate. There's no dignity here in any way. Man, wife, children, whatever. They're not distinguished. They're just like any other beast of burden. And, of course, they're they're thrown in there. And he says, but really... The bed's not the problem. If you're that tired, the floor is fine. That's not your biggest problem. So the physical, he just throws out the physical stuff, and he really never really addresses it again because, of course, the psychological is a, is more powerful than the physical, and he's going to jump right into that with the character of Mr. Severe. Well, Mr. Severe, ironically, is named Severe. He's mm. terrible. Yes. He's considered a cruel man. And he's cruel with his physical body, but he's also cruel with his words, cursing, raving, cutting, slashing among the slaves in the most frightful manner. He's so bad, he died. <laughs> <laughs> Deservedly so. Nobody, nobody regretted his passing. He, of course, was replaced by a Mr. Hopkins. Now, what's notable about Mr. Hopkins is he said to be at the other, he was less cruel and less profane. So again, we see a connection between people's physical actions and the severity of their words. And chapter two ends with a discussion on the power of words, not just from the perspective of the slave owner controlling the slave, but from the slave himself. Which is interesting because he talks about singing and the singing as an expression of the grief that's going on. And he said, one of the comments I loved was that if you were to listen to the slave songs, they were more compelling and more convincing against slavery than other arguments that you could make. He said every tone was a testimony against slavery and a prayer to God for deliverance from chains. And he goes on to say, to those songs, I trace my first glimmering conception of the dehumanizing character of slavery. And the songs were amazingly strong. Later on, he goes on to say, I have been often utterly astonished since I come to the North to find persons who could speak of the singing among slaves as evidence of their contentment and happiness. It is impossible to conceive of a greater mistake. Slaves sing most when they are most unhappy. Yeah, and this this idea, because I've heard a lot of slave, um, what are they called? Spirituals. Spirituals. Yeah, and the idea, and it's ironic, and it's really sad, if the slave... If the spiritual is happy, 
swing low, sweet chariot. They're singing about being happy about dying. Yes. Mm-hmm. And if the There's sla- a lot of irony in it. Yeah. And if the song is sad, they're singing about living. Yes. And so it's it's a horrible thing to think about that the songs are an expression, a call to be released, and the release is death, and a call to express the sadness of what life is. So, and it's of course understandable because they're beautiful, and yet I think the word is, is irony is appropriate, ironically twisted in what they were actually expressing. Right, and isn't it interesting that he wants to end that chapter on that discussion of the importance of singing and how it expresses the soul? Because even as a slave, the only form of expressing their humanity even was through words. The idea being there's a part of us that still knew we were human. We're connected to God. We're connected in a spiritual sense to this earth, to this world, even though everything in this world is telling us that we're not. And it is. It's sad. It's beyond sad. It is. So chapter three, uh, we're going to jump into that. There's, again, one of tons of irony. I want to point out that Frederick Douglass is noticed, and if you were to read his book, He's notable for this his famous use of what we call the chiasmus. I love that word. <laughs> a chiasmus is a literary device. Like metaphors are literary devices. There's just a strategy for talking. But a chiasmus is the Greek word for like X. And so what he does is he flops a phrase. So they, like in chapter three, and we're seeing this everywhere. I just happened to see this one. They were frequently whipped when they least when least deserving and escape whipping when they are most deserving. So he's always flopping mm-hmm. the language. And in some sense, he's always trying to show that things were the opposite than the way they were supposed to be. And this irony is always reflected, well, not always, but many, many times reflected through his use of the chiasmus. And I have to chime in one more time on Frederick Douglass's excellent analytical psychology skills you know, not only was he insightful in the white culture, he was very insightful into the slave culture as well and was able to identify these kinds of things. Right. When he's talking about the slave song, he says, the pathetic sentiment in the rose in the most rapturous tone and the most rapturous sentiment in the most pathetic tone, trying to show the mm-hmm. irony of what they were always expressing. And so, I would like to point out, being able to spot irony or develop and use irony is a very sophisticated writing technique so i mean we're we're not talking about him just writing a good book he's exhibiting some of the literary skills of some of the greatest people you've ever read chiasmuses aren't easy to make and he throws them out every single page and when he's talking about mr gore which is the next slave after mr severe you have mr hopkins and then you roll into mr gore and he says he was just the man for such a place and it was just the place for such a man meaning he's gory and he's evil and there was no better place for a gory and evil man than a gory and evil place like a slave. That's right. And I want to say more about Mr. Gore when we get to chapter 4 because he is a character worth looking at for a second there. Oh, he's horrible. And in chapter well, should we jump into that already? Or you want well, to talk about chapter three? I have a couple of things I would like to say about chapter three All before right. we leave. It's uh, really interesting that there are stories about uh, the the slaves getting into the fruit trees and getting whipped. Colonel Lloyd's horses ended up uh, their care ended up in slaves getting whipped. Uh, slaves learned to lie about their feelings. 
and their back to language, honest emotions, because they have no idea how far their words will travel and could end up in punishment. And but the very last thing is very interesting. And here is a piece of dignity for you right at the very end of uh, chapter three. So it would happen that the slaves from two different plantations would get together and have to work. Interestingly enough, they would get into competitions about their masters. And so these masters that they hated, when they got together with another plantation, they would be competitive in defending their master. Their master was the most gracious. Their master was the most wealthy, the most intelligent, the most accomplished. It would get competitive to the point that the slaves would break out in fistfights. And this is why it's important. And again, just an incredibly stellar insight into human character by, by Douglas. He says, they seem to think that the greatness of their masters was transferable to themselves. It was considered as being bad enough to be a slave, but to be a poor man's slave was dis- was deemed a disgrace indeed. So even if they had managed to be comfortable with slavery at some level, to be the slave of a bad master was just an even further disgrace, which is so foreign to any understanding that non-slaveholders would have in the North. It's true, but... And this is such a petty example, but we do this still. You know, I, as you know, I root for a football team, the University of Tennessee, that has lost every year to the University of Alabama. <laughs> and when I go to the Alabama games, those people are arrogant. The fans are arrogant. They had no part in winning, but they are terribly behaved at the end as if they had some part in the victory. So to be a fan of a team, you take on the characteristics of a team. And this is kind of the psychology that I see going on here. I don't know what that means, but we do it all the time. To me, what it means is it it just solidifies the idea that humans cannot avoid hierarchy. (laughs) They absolutely, sure. even in the slave world, they create a hierarchy. And there's a reference, I like to make reference to what Freud calls the narcissism of small things. No matter what your station in life, you're going to look for a way to feel superior. And Frederick Douglass points this out, even amongst slaves. Well, it's a point, it's a little bit of a point that's a bit of a humorous note that he's it's pathetic on right. the side. But the broader point, and I don't want us to leave this chapter without pointing it out, that they were not allowed to say anything bad about their Correct. slaves. So once again, you see the power of words and language as a means to control, even in their own competitive psychology. So chapter four brings on a character named Mr. Gore. And I would like to state up front, that Mr. Gore is at least antisocially personality disordered, (laughs) sociopathic even. Uh, And when we look at the description of how he treats the slaves, which is so different from Mr. Severe or anyone else, you can see, wow, this guy would be a um, serial killer in another life and another time. But Frederick Douglass is saying, maybe not. It's the slavery, the fact that he is what he is that makes him this. That could be true. But you also have to understand that a job like an overseer of slaves would attract a certain type of sociopath. He was just proud enough to demand the most debasing homage of the slaves and quite servile enough to crouch himself at the feet of the master. He was ambitious enough to be contented with nothing short of the highest rank of overseers and persevering enough to reach the height of his ambition. He was cruel enough to inflict the severest punishment 
artful enough to descend to the lowest trickery and obdurate enough to the to be insensible to the voice of the reproving consciousness. This parallelism is brilliant. And he's yeah. highlighting, you know, he's evil enough, low enough, but yet uh, clever enough to be effective. And I like this comment that Douglas makes about him where he says his savage barbarity was equaled only by the consummate coolness with which he committed the grossest and most savage deeds upon the slaves under his charge. That type of detachment is scary. Right, and he gives a great example. He kills this little slave named Demby. Demby was being beaten to death. He runs into a creek, and Mr. Gore says, come out, and he says no, and he says, I'm going to tell you three times, and then when he didn't, he shot him. And his bloods and brains marked the water where they had stood. And he's going to point out that nothing happened. He does. And what's also fascinating about chapter four, that's not just one murder. He recounts four murders. There are four times when slaves are murdered and no one suffers consequences for the murder. Yes. Mr. Thomas Latham. And then, of course, Mrs. Hicks, a mother. She's a mother a of a yeah. woman, mm-hmm. of a baby. And she pummels the slave girl that's supposed to be helping her because she falls asleep because she stayed up so many nights in a row because her baby wouldn't stop crying. And the impunity with which these acts are treated highlights, again, the barbarity and the dehumanization of the person who committed the atrocious acts as well as the victims themselves. And I have two things to say about that. Number one of which, he's recounting life on a plantation. A plantation is its own world, its own little microcosm. We're going to see when it gets to the city that that people have a very different attitude as far as how they treat slaves. But when you are out there at the plantation, you are a law in and of to yourself. And that is something that, uh, idea number two, that Douglas has to impress upon abolitionists in the North who've never been to a plantation. They've never been to a southern uh, isolated part of a plantation or anything like that. He has to try to explain to them the lack of justice. Now, the lack of justice would really appeal to the abolitionists. Well, they're not accountable, and you're allowed exactly. to do things when no one's watching. Well, and most would call that lawlessness, and that's just something that people in civilized society would be offended by. Yes. Chapter 5 is important. It changes his world, and I'm, it's almost like a baptism. He says this. Well, first of all, he says that he didn't suffer the way that other people suffered, first of all, because he was a little kid. Uh, but he said, I was probably between seven and eight when I left Colonel Lloyd's plantation. And this, of course, is the happiest day of his life. And he celebrates it by describing, and we talked about this when we talked about um, in Bradbury's Fahrenheit 451, the importance of water. It's almost like he mm. has a baptism. He's not allowed to leave that farm until he goes and he scrubs off the mange, and everyone has the mange on them. Um, and he scrubs himself, and he's going to have this new life. And he's going to leave. And, of course, this is the, the difference that's going to make his life change forever. And he has no idea at the time why it was he who was chosen. And he has um, no regrets about leaving. He talks about how he really doesn't have a connection to his grandmother or his mother or or anybody else at the plantation. So... Why not take off? And he'd heard so many stories about Baltimore as a city. And he also states that he understood it was a huge privilege for any slave to get to go to the city. 
Right. He said, I look upon my departure from Colonel Lloyd's plantation as one of the most interesting events of my life. It is possible and even quite probable, but that for the mere circumstance of being removed from the plantation to Baltimore, I should have today, instead of being here seated at my own table in the enjoyment of freedom and the happiness of home, writing this narrative, been confined to the galling chains of slavery. Going to Baltimore laid the foundation and opened the gateway to all my subsequent prosperity. I've ever regarded it as the first plain manifestation of that kind of providence which has ever since attended me and marked my life with so many favors. I regarded the selection of myself as being somewhat remarkable. There were a number of slave children that might have been sent from the plantation to Baltimore. There were those younger, those older, and those of the same age. I was chosen from among them all and was the first, last, and only choice. And then he's going to point out to what I think is a fourth theme that we're going to see. And he's almost embarrassed by this as we go through the story. But he's one, he's wants to talk about the role of God uh, in his life. And this is particularly interesting if you're a religious person. Douglas is going to say, in spite of all the religion that he sees in the South, it's demonic. And he is going to chronicle quite a bit of that. That he not only believes in God, but that God's moving hand actually altered the course of his life. That's what he means when he says, providence, I was the only choice. He believes that God himself, perhaps miraculously, uh, picked him up and changed his course of life for a specific reason. Now, after the book was published, Douglas is actually going to write an entire appendix about his view of faith. And it's interesting in its own way. We don't have time to get into this on the podcast, but if you're a person of faith or have an interest in this sort of thing, it's really an interesting and beautiful discussion of what it means to be a follower of Christ or what Douglas calls the pure, peaceful impartiality impartiality of Christianity of Christ. And he's going to contrast that with the corrupt, slave-holding, women-whipping, cradle-plundering, partial and hypocritical Christianity of the South that he calls the boldest of frauds. I think it's interesting that a man who went through so much, often at the name of God, left those experiences with this really articulate expression of religion that he's going to inject into the beginning here, and he's going to take it all the way through the book and includes an appendix about it. So if that interests you, read the appendix. It's published uh, with the original book on April 28, 1845, and it's included in a lot of editions, although it's not always included. It's just this kind of a a thing that's been added on. He's going to end this chapter saying, I may be deemed superstitious and egotistical in regarding this event as a special interposition of divine providence in my favor, but I should be false to the earliest sentiments of my soul if I suppress that opinion. I prefer to be true to myself, even at the hazard of incurring the ridicule of others, than to be false and incur my own abhorrence. Well, he is going to take all the literary skill that he's applied to slavery and he's going to apply it to a discussion of religion. So there will be um, a a very strong light cast on a lot of ideas. This good spirit was from God, and to him I offer thanksgiving and praise. And, of course, that takes us into, in an interesting way, chapter 6, which is, in some sense, a conversion experience to use a Christian phraseology of what's going to be 
the central argument of the entire book. So we have fact argument one, slavery dehumanizes the person that's being a slave. Argument two, slave slave holding condemns the person who is the slave owner. And then of course argument three, how do you get out of it? And that's what happens Mm -hmm. in chapter six. And who does he meet in Baltimore when he gets there? He meets the Alds. The Alds family. And I would like to read his quote about Mrs. Ald. And here, I saw what I had never seen before. It was a white face beaming with the most kindly emotions. It was the face of my new mistress, Sophia Ald. And he spends some time describing her in angelic terms, and he'd never seen anything like it before. Right, and it's important to note that these are uh, religious terminologies. And this is not, these are not careless words. He's saying in her unslaveholding state, she's an angel. Mm-hmm. And we're going to watch her descend and become just as cruel as Mr. Severe and Mr. Gore by the end of the chapter. And of course, her act of godliness or her act of providence or her act of uh, I don't angelic proportion is what it's teaching him to read, and of course that's the first thing she does. She teaches him the ABCs. She teaches him how to read little few a few little three or four letter words until we have this conversation that becomes the epiphany of his life, which is so interesting because. While Mrs. Ald was in her angelic state of grace teaching him to read, he was not expressing a lot of uh, great insight or devotion about that. It's when it gets taken away from him that all of a sudden he will begin to understand the importance and the freedom of reading and literacy. Yes, and he says, and I, I hate to read this, but he says, if you give an, an N-word an inch, he will take an eel. Uh an inward should know nothing but to obey his master, to do as he is told to do. Learning would spoil him. Now, he said, if you teach that inward, speaking of myself, how to read, there would be no keeping him. It would forever unfit him to be a slave. He would at once become unmanageable and of no value to his master. As to himself, it could do him no good but a great deal of harm. It would make him discontented and unhappy." The, that's what Mr. Ald said in front of Frederick well, about f- what would happen if he learned to read. In front of our little psychologist, who demonstrates this incredible deductive ability <laughs> to understand, oh, by their actions, I can deduce that this is a super important thing. Well, he calls it a revelation. I'm almost uh, like, yeah. God showed him this. And he says, I now understood. It's, it's been the, the most perplexing difficulty to wit. The white man's power to enslave the black man. It was a grand achievement, and I prized it highly. From that moment, I understood the pathway from slavery to freedom, and it was just what I wanted. I got it at the time when I least inspected it. While I was saddened by the thought of losing the aid of my kind mistress, I was gladdened by the invaluable instruction which, by the merest accident, I had gained from my master. Though conscious of the difficulty of learning without a teacher, I set out with high hope and a fixed purpose at whatever cost of trouble to learn how to read. The very decided manner with which he spoke and to strove to impress his wife with the evil consequences of giving me instruction 
served to convince me that he was deeply sensible of the truths he was uttering. It gave me the best assurance that I might rely with the utmost confidence on the results which he said would flow from teaching me to read what he most dreaded that I most desired, what he most loved, that I most hated. Such an incredible insight into human behavior. And I want to point this out about Douglas's thinking back here when he says, it was a grand achievement. Like, he's almost complimentary <laughs> of slave owners figuring out what it took to keep people in slavery. It was like he almost enjoyed the revelation so much there was no resentment over it. Like, what a, an amazing thing you figured out. And then he decided, I'm going to co-opt it for myself. Well, and you have to think, I don't know what it would be like, but you're on a slave plantation. There's thousands of slaves and few masters, and yet they're in control. And the slaves were more than likely larger than their masters. And he has to wonder, what makes you obey you? Right. And he finally figures it out. It's the power. He says, in learning to read, I owe almost as much to the bitter opposition of my master as to the kindly aid of my mistress. I acknowledge the benefit of both. And of course, that's what we're going to see in chapters six and seven. He's going to figure out how to read. And of course, she doesn't help him anymore, but he finds people that do, and they are the boys in the community. And there's an interesting kind of, again, religious parallel, because in this sense, he is having this spiritual awakening. Uh, and I've, I've heard, I've read several commentaries that read this. As a student of the Bible, you know, in the book of, in the New Testament, the Bible says that the word became man and dwelt among men. In other words, God expresses himself. God coming to earth was a the Bible word was he became the word. He became the word. So Frederick Douglass is going to take this idea, and it's through the word that you become a man, that you become a person. Yes, you can have flesh, but what is the difference between a person who's breathing and having breath and a person who's living? And he's going to say you're being injected with the word. And with the word, he's going to exchange bread for words in this chapter. And with every piece of bread that he gives to those little boys, they give him more words and he's going to become more and more of a man. And that's what we're supposed to be noticing as we see this evolution over the time. The more I read, the more I was led to abhor and detest my enslavers, is what he says. Well, we could spend, or not you, but me, I could spend a whole separate podcast just discussing what language does to people psychologically, how it shapes everything and, and what it creates and what it does. And he is giving us a firsthand account of a sentient being discovering all of this and how important it is. And he makes yet another grand observation about white culture that he's living in. He says, a city slave is almost a freeman compared with the slave on the plantation. He is much better fed and clothed and enjoys privileges altogether unknown to the slave on the plantation. There is a vestige of decency, a sense of shame that does much to curb and check those outbreaks of atrocious cruelty so commonly enacted upon the plantation. He goes on to say, above all things, they would not, their slave owners would not want to be known as not giving a slave enough to eat. 
Every city slaveholder is anxious to have it known of him that he feeds his slaves well and it is due to them to say the most of them to give their slaves enough to eat. What I find fascinating about that whole thing is the power of peer pressure. So again, when you're out on the isolated plantation, you enter um, a, a contained cordoned off world where things fall apart. But in the presence of other people, even that has a great moderating power over those. It's like an admission that you know better. It exactly is an admission that you know better, that you understand that this is an awkward, uncomfortable, bad thing. Well, I find that the last ironic thing that I want to point out is he gets a hold of a book called The Columbian Orator. Now, this, I wouldn't, we don't read this book anymore. But what it is, it was first published in 1797, and it's an anthology of speeches dating from like classical antiquity through the American Revolution. So it's passage after passage about freedom, democracy, courage. And he's going to read these over and over again. He's going to memorize them. And I really think when we read his book, we're seeing he was being taught to read, to speak, to write, and to persuade by the classical masters. <laughs> but let me say this, which makes it even more impressive. Not only was he reading, he was absorbing. You and I know there are a lot of students who read a lot of things that don't absorb any of it. But there was something in his abstract capacity that would allow him to read a piece of classic literature and like take the, the meat of it. Right. He's reading about the Catholic emancipation and Sheridan's speeches, and he's being able to apply them to himself. So he's able to understand the parallels, really to understand what freedom is. And then he's under, understanding, well, this applies to me too. So we're going to end this chapter uh, with him dedicating himself, not just learning to read, but learning to write. And what he finds out, of course, is that Mr. Ald is exactly right. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> And I love the fact that he's so willing to credit him with that. Yes. And at the end of his life, it's interesting. I mean, this is years later after he escapes and after he goes goes away, goes to Europe, buys himself from these people. He's going to come back and, and no one knows what happens, but he's going to encounter Mr. Ald one more time before he dies. And I don't really know what happened, but I know he did it. So good. That'll on be- that note, it's an interesting thought to, to end our discussion today. Yes. And wow, so many ideas. I don't even know how to sum them up. What, what are the three things that, that he used? Three arguments. Slavery dehumanizes the slave. It dehumanizes the slave owner. Perhaps the power of God himself descending the word can bring us freedom through the power of the word. And it is in word that you find freedom however you want to define that. Very powerful idea, something to think about. Well, and all of that, do you think we discovered enough ethos, pathos, and... Oh, good Lord, yes. <laughs> and the, and, <laughs> and the, logos. <laughs> yes. Yeah, we, we kind of hammered those points today. So thanks for being with us. Uh, we hope you enjoyed it. Hopefully you can tell it's fascinating stuff to us, and we love discussing these things. And uh, Come along and join us next time when we get into the, the next few chapters, which will be... 8 through 10. Please look us up on Facebook and become our friend and check us out on Instagram and follow our updates and our promotions. 
Please check out our website, howtolovelitpodcast.com. We always tell you we've got all kinds of great teacher materials that Christy puts together. They go along with our discussions. So thanks for being with us. Catch up with us next time as we go deeper and deeper into the world of Frederick Douglass. Tell a friend about us and peace out. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.